I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. fiction nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that nearly every issue that shows up in your Twitter feed or the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, and the author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. All right, look, we have been fairly critical of the Trump administration on this show. Just a little. And all right, but here is a compliment. I cannot think of a presidential administration that has been more literary, not in the sense that the president reads, which we kind of know he doesn't, but in the sense that the administration seems filled with the kinds of literary devices and tropes that have powered narrative fiction since time immemorial. Oedipus complexes, foreign intrigue, lying, overweening ambition, marital discord, sexual violence. And perhaps the most classic literary trope of all, betrayal. Later, we'll be talking to the poet Kiki Petrosino about a Shakespearean take on the Trump administration, Michael Flynn, and the Mueller investigation. But right now, we're joined by the novelist Jess Walter, author of Beautiful Ruins, The Financial Lives of the Poets, The Zero, and the 2005 novel Citizen Vince, which also deals with politics and betrayal. Welcome, Jess. Thanks. Great to be here. To set things up, earlier this month, special counsel Robert Mueller announced that Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, had pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI about conversations with the Russian ambassador and that he's cooperating with the office of the special counsel, leading to a lot of speculation that he might flip on Trump. You've been following that story, Jess. Does that, does that seem like the same kind of literary gold to you that it seems to me? <laughs> or is it too exaggerated or crazy to even work as fiction? Yeah, I mean, it certainly has the narrative elements, there's no doubt. But what it doesn't seem to have is that other hallmark of literature, um, 
thematic depth or intelligence, or, <laughs> or perhaps it's our understanding of it. it um, you know, I, I've thought this ever since since Trump became a candidate. I thought, you know, at some point um, we learn, and I think that's what happens in in literature: is we learn. We, you know, characters change, the world changes, and uh, I, I mean, I, I see. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that there's this big push in dystopian fiction and in post-apocalyptic fiction, because right now it just all seems so cynical that, you know, the only literature that I keep thinking of are things like Lord of the Flies, you know, or uh, <laughs> A Clockwork Orange. It, um, well, know, here's it doesn't, the thing. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I was thinking about in terms of literary terms, the thing I tell my classes all the time, bad characters who do wrong things are much more interesting than good characters who do just things. It's axiomatic of narrative. And yet, and, and, and of course, Trump is fascinating for exactly those narrative reasons. I think he speaks, though, to a side of, of American culture from his election to his malleability with truth that speaks more to our indifference to um, to those, you know, to learning. And, and it, and it feels like the triumph of our, of our most distracted, um, racist, misogynistic selves. And so you're right there, you know, we, we have villainy, which is a great thing to start with. I mean, Satan um, is the best character in Paradise Lost. Oh, you know? Certainly. But, but certainly. so uncomfortable to live with. <laughs> and, and yet, um, there's there's something you know that phrase the banality of evil. He in the end is a cipher. Uh, you know Ben Greenman is writing these short short fictions about the inside of Trump's brain, um, <laughs> and and they really are just sort of like watching little pieces of paper flare up and disappear. There's so little depth and resonance. I find Nixon to be a much more fascinating character because he because of the depth of character. Um, and so when I look at the central character at the heart of this, which is what you know, a villain or any literary thing would push. Um, I find this cipher. I find this kind of empty spot. Well, so, but you do mention um, Nixon and Nixon had the Watergate break in. Trump has this potential collusion with the Russians that Mueller is investigating right now. Nixon fired Archibald Cox, who was the independent special prosecutor back then and who was investigating the Watergate break in. And Trump, of course, fired uh James Comey, and that's been talked about a lot. And we wanted to look at the actual literary sources for the Watergate story, in particular, the famous book, All the President's Men, which is a favorite of both Wits and mine, um, yeah, by, of course, great. the classic team of Woodward and Bernstein. And you have a personal connection to that story, I understand. I mean, I became a reporter in part because of Woodward and Bernstein. Um, you know, I felt like uh, I had Bernstein's hair and Woodward's chops, honestly. So I thought, <laughs> I thought, I thought there was no stopping me in the early '80s. Um, uh, but and, and so, uh, you know, the chance to go interview Mark Felt, who turned out to be Deep Throat, it was this amazing opportunity. Uh, so I, I went to my publisher. He had. His family at that time, his he'd moved in with his daughter, and he was sort of for the first time in his life saying things about possibly being deep throat. And they got a lawyer, and the lawyer wanted money, and there were all these high what level was negotiations. This, this was um, right before he came out, so uh, as, so it would have been right around oh. Five oh six. Is that so? You would have been right? breaking the story that he was deep throat. I would have been breaking the story of who was deep throat. I remember calling an old colleague of mine and saying. Well, I found Deep Throat. Um, <laughs> it, it hasn't been outed yet that um, that Mark Felt, the former number two man at the FBI, is this 
world famous source, you know, who helped bring down the Nixon presidency. So, yeah, I, I fly to Northern California and I and I meet with him and um, and his lawyer and his daughter and I find that he's suffering from severe severe dementia. Um, he and so he says, "Yeah, I was the man they called Deep Throat." Um, and I said, well, does that mean you were deep throat? Cause I know you were one of the people, you know, and he's, and they look at me and say, what's deep throat, you know, and, uh, um, his, his Aww. ability to track. And sometimes I would leave and his lawyer would say, look, he said he was deep throat. And I would say, yeah, you know, it was, so I started doing all this out, outside research. Um, I went back through all of Woodward's reporting before Watergate to see if I could trace some of his, um, some of his sources. Do you remember what a deep source is? A deep source is someone that you don't admit you ever even was a source. You only use this as background information to go prove other things. Deep Throat, Mark felt, was the ultimate deep source on this. Um, but what did Woodward and Bernstein, they didn't do, they didn't treat him like a deep source. They created a parlor game. They created the most compelling character in their book based on someone they weren't supposed to say existed. They did that because they turned in their first draft of all the president's men with no mention of this. Of oh, this I did not know and that. Out- Alice Mayhew, their editor, said, look, this is boring. So they needed a narrative device. They needed a narrative device. They went back and they said, hey, Bob, you got to use your source. But they did an interesting thing. They gave Felt uh, a way to deny this. They wrote a fictionalized version of a source. So Felt was able to say, I wasn't deep throat. I didn't meet them in a parking garage. I didn't put a plant out on my balcony um, (laughs) because I don't believe he did any of that. I think I think. Um, yeah, I think he was able to say I wasn't that guy. And I think they felt like they were probably doing it as a way to protect a source, to juice up their book. I mean, it, and it sort of, you know, fractured this, um, this belief I had about, about the whole system. But, but, you know, after years of being Woodward's source, Felt isn't going to all of a sudden say, meet me in a parking garage. He's going to answer his phone and he's going to say, you know, follow the money, look at creep, look at these things. But the, the, the amounts of money that Harper Collins were talking, they wanted to be able to send, you know, deep throat out on the morning shows. And so I had to go back to the lawyer and say, I don't feel like, you know, I, I would love to still write this book, but I'm, I, you know, I can't pay you what you want for this story. You know, it was, it all, it was all feeling sort of strange anyway, paying the family for, you know, his story. So the whole thing kind of fell apart. And about a year later, um, the lawyer himself wrote a piece for Vanity Fair saying that um, Mark Felt had told him he was deep throat. I remember that. Yeah, I remember that too. Right, right. Based on attorney-client privilege. And and the other thing people don't realize was the incredible civil war going on within the FBI. Remember, J. Edgar Hoover is right at the end of his career. He has created an empire. He's outlasted, what, six U.S. presidents. Um, And Nixon was so terrified of him. The entire Watergate break-in occurs because Nixon is afraid to use the FBI. And one of the things that always made felt angry about it was why did you use these amateurs we're pros um but there was such a division between the fbi we may never so nixon like mistakenly i've read some about this too i mean in in a way he mistakenly made the fbi into an enemy uh which is similar to what trump's doing right now exactly it's exactly what's happening now the fact that and the fact you know the FBI at the time was riven between agents like um, William Sullivan who um, who was involved in the Quintel Pro papers who wrote um, letters to Martin Luther King trying to 
encourage him to commit suicide. He was the ultimate rat fucker. Nice and Sullivan was on one side of, the, of this FBI power struggle. Felt was on the other. And Felt was sort of the guy fighting for for um, uh, civil rights. It, it, I, I think as much as Felt is going to be, you know, is looked at as sort of the hero of this moment, I mean, Comey, as strange a character as he is, as um, as strange as his behavior was on the Hillary Clinton email things, and and that again, I think that's more that shows more of this kind of war going on within the FBI. There were some FBI agents who who were really anti-Clinton, and then others, you know, who um, who obviously, you know, are, are are so alarmed by what's happened with Trump and Russia. Well, Comey clearly felt, you know betrayed by Trump when he fired him. And that's sort of our you know theme for today. And I, one of the things that struck me when I was reading All the President's Men is, is how many people felt betrayed who were around Nixon. I mean, Republicans around Nixon that felt betrayed that the White House was behaving unethically when it was revealed to them or when they found out about it. You know, there's this woman, uh, Martha Mitchell, who's the wife of John Mitchell, who's the director of of Nixon's re-election campaign, called up Helen Thomas, the famous reporter, and said, I'm not going to stand for all those dirty things that go on. If you could see me, you wouldn't believe me. I'm black and blue. And there's a guy named Hugh Sloan who quits the Nixon administration for the same reasons, you know. But comparatively, when I was reading it, I kept thinking like, all right, so who is it that I could have – I can't imagine Ivanka Trump or Jeff Sessions' wife or, you know, Jeff Sessions feeling betrayed about the unethical behavior in the current White House. We, we really compress time, you know, that the, you know, the break-ins in 72 and 74, Nixon resigns, the book comes out in 76. By the time those people are interviewed, of course, they're outraged. Right. Um, but, yeah. but, and we have people, I, I look at Roy Moore now, and how many senators came out and said, you know, he should not be seated as a, as a U.S. senator. This is, you, you know, he's, Dating fourteen, dating. He's molesting fourteen-year-olds. But they've all backtracked, you know? except for just. And a now few. they've all. And now they've all backtracked. Self-interest is, uh, is, is the, is the weather vane everywhere, but especially in Washington. And when the, when self in, when the self-interest winds blow them the other way, it'll be amazing. Mitch McConnell will act like he's never even met Donald Trump. You know when. Um, <laughs> so it, so it, you, these people, four, but I mean, four I years like- from now. I felt like there was some truth and real outrage from from characters like Martha Mitchell or, or Hugh Sloan. Like they really thought, like I don't want to do illegal things. I'm not in it for this, you know. And and that doesn't seem to be an activating principle in Trump world, you know. But what is betrayal for somebody like Trump if that's not? As I said before, I think he is a narcissistic cipher. I think he, uh, you like Trump, and Trump likes you, and there cannot be a more easy character to manipulate, to use. Uh, I look at what the Republicans have sacrificed to get this tax cut across. This is going to be their legislative victory is, um, you know, and I, and it's, I think it's the last gasp of really a dying party that's out of touch with um, demographics, that's out of touch with so much. But that there will be betrayals as soon as it's in people's self-interest. Uh, the rats will scurry away, I think, from the ship. And <laughs> Uh, and yeah. I can't wait to read the, you know, whatever that, whatever that all the president's men is, um, you know, in, in 2020 with President Booker and with, a, you know, with Senate and uh, House majorities for the Democrats and um, some sanity restored. What a nice vision. I want that vision. <laughs> well, it's, um, it's, my, it's my personal no longer have to be objective reporter vision. 
<laughs> so we are all ex-reporters here. And I think, you know, it's interesting to imagine kind of a future version of All the President's Men. The book really delves into pretty nitty gritty reporting. And, you know, I, I have to say I don't envy, um, or I guess one, actually, in some ways I do envy my friends who are reporting on the Trump administration, but they are facing a very different challenge with this administration. Uh, people who are fully prepared to directly lie for the president um, and for other legislators. And every time Woodward and Bernstein file a story, they call Nixon's committee to reelect the president for comment. The CRP representative always issues a denial, but the the denials are phrased so that they aren't actually lies. So I'm just going to read a quick passage to show what I mean. Bernstein called CRP for the rights of denial. I like that phrase. And reached Powell Moore. Half an hour later, Moore called back with the committee's response. Quote, I think your sources are bad. They're providing misinformation. We're not going to comment beyond that, he said. He couldn't be budged to discuss the specifics. Bernstein remained at the post that night to pursue the apparent Haldeman connection and read the clips on Herbert Kalmbach. At about 11 p.m., he got another call from Moore, who had talked to John Mitchell and had a new statement. There is absolutely no truth to the charges in the Post story. Neither Mr. Mitchell nor Mr. Stuns has any knowledge of any disbursement from an alleged fund as described by the Post, and neither of them controlled any committee expenditures while serving as government officials. Bernstein studied the statement and underlined the soft spots. The charges in the Post story. What charges? Disbursement from an alleged fund as described by the Post. There was no denial of the fund's existence or that money had been dispersed, only of the way it was described. Neither of them controlled any committee expenditures. Technically correct. Sloan had controlled the expenditures. Mitchell and Stans had only approved them. It was the cleverest denial yet, Bernstein told Moore, and tried to go over it with him. Moore wouldn't play. Uh, for me... Look, I'm a sucker for that, for all reporter stories. But I remember doing stuff like that, you know, when I was at the Star and, you know, listening to responses from government officials and, you know, understanding that we were speaking a kind of coded language, but one that actually relied on both sides agreeing that there is such a thing as truth. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, right. uh, and, and I just feel like that is seems to have evaporated. I think that's evaporated. I think the American um, attention span has dwindled also. Go back and read those Watergate stories. They're incredibly complex. I mean, they are talking about, um, you know, they really are pulling at these strings that took – uh, you know, and they're not terribly well written either. I have to tell you, but when you <laughs> oh, no. when, when you go back and read, you know, 1972 reporting, it's it really is incremental. And and even now, um, you know, watching watching Mueller build this incremental case is fascinating. And then the president comes out and says, "No collusion, no collusion," and uh, and you know, and he has an entire incredibly well watched television network, uh, and you know to to repeat those things. And you're right. There, there is an abandonment of truth. And now, um, you know, the, with this idea of fake news and, you know, and Trump constantly saying that, and then his supporters, 
you know, working really hard to try to undermine uh, the Mueller investigation, it's there is there isn't um, a solid ground to stand on. And I, I, I remember arguing at one time with with another writer about fiction versus nonfiction. And this writer said, well, we all know history is biased. It's written by winners. You know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't take into consideration these things. We know the bias of writing and all these things are true. We know that there are great swampy stretches, but if we don't acknowledge that there's water and solid ground somewhere, we're lost. And that's kind of what it feels like to me. You know, we, and I do this as a liberal. I I get an echo chamber. If you were to look at my Twitter feed, you would not know there was a single conservative in America. It's just people <laughs> outraged by the same things I'm outraged by. And we, we bounce around in these echo chambers with our own sets of information, our own sets of news. And I partially blame news for doing this, too. You know, the way MSNBC followed Fox and said, we are going to follow um, a news show with blatant opinion, and you're not going to really be able to well, tell the I mean, the Woodward, Woodward was a Republican, I think. Uh, right, right. And he would say so in interviews, you know. And I, it was amazing how much more interplay and less, I mean, maybe their stories were to blame for this, but there's just also a scene in the book where Woodward just calls up the White House librarian and asks, yes. has Hunt been reading this such and such a book? And she right. tells him. Can you imagine the Post calling the White House librarian and getting anything other than an immediate hang up right now? Well, no, but there's still there's still great reporting going on. Fahrenheit at the Washington Post is constantly I love when he shows his notebooks of him checking off the charities that he's called to see if Trump really donated. Um, He was my editor in college. Was he? Oh, man, was was he great? Yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. It was he was an amazing teacher. And yeah, that kind of old it is that kind of old fashioned reporting does also seem to be um, returning to a certain kind of I think returning to a certain kind of importance now, I think that like the kind of shoe leather work that he's been doing combined with crowdsourcing information. Um, I, I mean, I'm not sure. Like if you called the White House library now, maybe they wouldn't hang up. I mean, maybe, maybe the question is kind of how many people are being funded to actually make that phone call. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and the, you know, the, the illness that print journalism is in is one flaw, but, but only half of Americans are going to believe you know, even that great, that great shoe leather reporting, they, they just are not, they're just not going to take that information in there. There's a, there was a study on, on bullshit acceptability um, and how many people, and it's not that we assume that we are is it titled bullshit up, acceptability. Yeah. This is oh, our yeah. study on yeah. bullshit this acceptability. Is what it's Google yeah. that everyone, oh, Google it right it, now. Yeah. It was like a Yale study, but, oh, but good. the thing they, the thing they found was that it wasn't just um, it wasn't just that we are that we are um, taking information and then processing it through our liberal or conservative um, minds or you know whatever, but we're not even taking the information in. Um, it's not getting through the wall, and the wall is built of these these expectations we have from the beginning, and and it. And it, it makes it really impossible as a reporter. Where do you start? Do you start with the sun going around the, the uh, earth, you know, if you're, um, if you're trying to appeal to these people, you know, do you, do you flatten the earth? You know, what, what kind of basis of truth and understanding well, do you have? I think have to go back to the uh, sun going around the earth because there are a significant number of flat earthers out there. There yeah. are. I know. I know. And, uh, and it's a similar sort of thing. If you're just not 
going to take the information in, um, you know, or, and, and I think there, I think there is a certain, there's a little bit of an anarchist side to Trump. There are some people who love that he lies. It makes him more honest in some strange way. Mm -hmm. Well, they all lie. This one at least doesn't pretend to tell the truth. Uh, and he just throws bombs. I love that he throws bombs. I want to say one thing that, that before somebody yells at me, which is that there obviously are people who do feel betrayed by the administration, and those are the people who are leaking the information sure. uh, out of the out of the various agencies uh, about what's going on inside. So I, I just wanted to note that. All right, so Jess, we also want to turn to your 2005 novel, Citizen Vince, which is a book I really love. It's explicitly oh, okay. about politics and betrayal, and except that it's set during the waning days of the Carter uh, Reagan Anderson presidential race. Uh, could you just set up the book for us and maybe, you know, for people who haven't read it yet and maybe tell us how you conceived of it? Yeah, I uh, when I was a newspaper reporter, one of I covered a murder um, that was committed by a guy in the witness protection program. Uh, he uh, we didn't realize this until I got his name and I started running all of the usual police reporter checks. And I realized that this guy had had, you know, had never committed a crime and usually chopping up a body putting it in garbage bags, putting it in the trunk of a car and driving out in the woods is not your first crime. You usually want to, you know, break into it more quickly. But the name they'd given me was this guy who had no criminal record, had never bought a house. And then I had a source at the DMV who said, well, your, your boy's only been driving for six months. And so I went to a police officer. I said, what do I make all this? And he said, oh, that's witness protection. I've seen that before. We get those guys in Spokane every once in a while, and they don't even tell us their real names. Mm. We tracked down his real name um, and found out that he'd been a member of the Lucchese crime family and had been resettled in Spokane as part of the witness protection program. And this got me fascinated with the program. So was a good town, it turned out, for the witness protection program. So this sort of launched me into thinking about these guys and thinking about Fitzgerald's admonition that there are no second acts in American life. And um, and I had just come off covering the 1996, um, mid, or no, sorry, 1994 midterm elections, and I was so fascinated. Uh, and I, I, I set out to write a book about a guy who gets his voting rights restored, and I, I remember thinking it's a thriller about voting, which is probably <laughs> the worst pitch, uh, worst pitch you could ever give. But yeah, I started thinking we take voting rights away from felons. And I was trying to find um, a kind of uh, symbolic gesture for this uh, character I'd created. One of the many betrayals in Citizen Vince is the sort of thing that Democrats are hoping Mike Flynn will do. And it, it happens before the book begins. Vince is working with mobsters in New York. He gets in debt. He gets busted by the cops. He's looking at two years in jail. And he agrees to testify against Dominic Coletti, a mob boss and his crew, in return for gaining entry into the, the witness protection program, which is which you've just been outlining. And, and it's interesting because you're addressing loyalty and honesty, the sort of code um, that's from the point of view of career criminals. And I mean, I think maybe we're just trying to read logic into the Trump administration <laughs> very persistently. Maybe we just want to think there's logic there. I mean, do you see a similar code to the one that you depicted among Trump administration officials or among Bannonites, like a, a some sort of some America. sort of rule? 
Yeah, I mean, the, well, the truth of Omerta of this code of silence is that is the witness protection program is exactly what broke it. Self-interest wins, and the self-interest will win out here too. I mean, Michael Flynn will protect his son, and he'll, you know, and Manafort. If if you have, uh, if you can offer something in return. They will turn. I really think they will. Rats will run. You know, Jared Kushner is not going to do well in prison. I think he even um, we'll see how uh, how sturdy uh, he and Ivanka are. Um, and I, I do think that Mueller is going to start flipping people. You know, it, a lot of it will depend on what's at the bottom of the case. You also weave the Carter and Reagan election into the narrative. And, and the mobsters themselves sort of understand that these worlds are like similar and they comment on them, you know, and there's this passage when uh, John Gotti, who's a character in the book, talks about why Reagan is going to win the election. Uh, and I'm going to ask you to read it, but I'm going to tell listeners that if you're in the car with your kids, it's time for the earmuffs, because yeah. this is a mob boss who is drunk and losing at cards, and he is not going to use a lot of nice language. No, that's right. It, and it is John Gotti who was his own rise kind of mirrored Reagan's at that time. He was just a small crew boss at that time. And um, and this uh, card game that really did used to take place in Little Italy um, uh, is he's he's just explained why Carter's going to lose. Uh, and again, apologize for the language. It's Gotti's not mine uh, because he says Carter forgot not to be a pussy. Uh, and so. But he we says, know that that's the language that Trump uses, so why not? Right, that's true, sense? good point. Yeah, so Gotti says, people will follow a drunk, even a retard. They'll follow a stone criminal, psychopaths and lunatics and queer bullies. But if they think you ain't got balls, even for one second, you're fucking done. So you think Reagan's going to win? Hell yes, Reagan's going to win. It's a whole new thing coming here. It's going to be fucking flags and parades and armies and virgins and 19 fucking 50 all over again. A pussy can get elected once, but not twice. We can't go eight years without kicking a little ass. We like to kick ass. We pretend we don't, but we do. He waves around the table. The people out there, they're no different than us. It's no different than than what we got stuck with Big Paul as boss instead of Neil. I wish we could have Reagan run our shop. You watch. We're going to have our own Reagan one day. Rise up. A real boss. Someone with some fucking charisma. Someone people respect. Come in and restore a little pride to the operation. Glory. Kick the asses that ain't been kicked the last three years. Starting with that fat fuck pussy Big Paul. It only gets nastier from there. Oh, my God. Um, Yeah. yeah. But that is the... I, I that all that uh, language comes from hanging out with New York cops. Actually, that was mostly how they talked. So. No, I think I think you just I think that was the I think Look, that's I think the that's how people talk inside the White House now. Yeah. Oh no, I'm yeah. sure I'm sure you're I'm sure you're totally fucking right. Um, yeah. <laughs> and on this I mean, podcast, well, read 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 Corey Lewandowski's read the excerpt from his story of when Manafort. Um, uh, when Matt, when uh, it, it came out that Paul Manafort was, um, you know, was working for uh, the Ukrainian government and they had to fire him. It sounds like an episode of The Sopranos. They both have a sort of real politic view of the world and they will cut off a foot. They will um, whack somebody. They'll fire people with no hesitation uh, if if it furthers their their advances and they'll they'll rat on one another in the same way they really will you just have to find the soft spot so do you think Gotti would have gone for trump or would he have thought that trump was a fake um i think Gotti would have respected trump uh again that we 
we we we like to you know we like to give our criminals um, much more. We give them much more credit than they deserve. They they are. I mean, we you know who John Gotti was. He was the guy who knocked you down and took your lunch money. You know, and um, yeah, the, I met those guys in Kansas City. I knew the guys here. Yeah. And they, yeah, and they're, they're not that, they're, you know, they're just not that complicated. No. And their charm is to get what they want. You know, the, the, you know, Whitey Bulger ran the Boston mob and he was an FBI informant the whole time. And they're you know? also super vain, super vain super. in the same way that Trump is super vain, like little yeah. tiny vanities mattered so much. It was incredible. Yeah. And so I think Gotti would have, uh, I mean, Gotti and Trump come out of the same, you know, uh, 1970s, 80s uh, greed furnace that was Manhattan, you know, I think. In fact, Gotti, if he were still alive, might actually be head of the EPA. People forget that Ronald Reagan was the first one who said, let's make America great again. <laughs> you know, um, oh. tr- that that comes directly out of, out of Reagan's speeches. Trump... You know, Trump is a child of this moment and this time, and his appeal to that to that nostalgia to Americans who thought the Reagan years were the greatest is the re- is one of the many reasons, none of which speak you know too well for myself and my and and our countrymen um, and women that. Yeah, I mean that he got elected in part because he, of this appeal to that kind of nostalgia. So just what about Vince himself at the end of the book? He finally gets to vote in the election and he's an ex-con and he has a kind of faith in this process. And in the voting booth, he thinks, quote, maybe this whole thing is stupid. Um, He feels foolish. Maybe you build a thing up in your mind and believe that it connects to your own life and has some meaning. But what if you're just fooling yourself? What if it doesn't mean anything in the end? Or is it enough to believe that a thing has meaning? What do you mean by that last line? Can you leave us with a little hope here? Yeah, I mean, I and we started asking what what's literary about this moment, and I think um, I I think pure cynicism and nihilism and greed and the baser instincts are what don't interest me, um, and and they are what isn't literary about this moment. And it was funny, I to create the character of Vince, I had to create him a little bit. Um, slightly off kilter from the real mobsters I knew. I and I had to create in him the desire for something larger and grander. And I do think that's what literature speaks to. And I think it's what we'll return to. And I think um, it's what journalism at its best speaks to. I think it's what all good art speaks to. Is is meaning uh, is searching these random details for meaning, not just a good steak or a good cheeseburger or um, more a bigger tax break, you know. I and so um, it, it's funny when I finished the novel, I gave it to one of the guys in the witness protection program I knew, and I he read it and he's like, "Oh my god, you fucking nailed it!" Uh, that, that, <laughs> I was at Gotti's poker game and that's exactly what it was like you got the speech right you got um, everything right my only question is why the fuck would this guy care who he votes for um, and then he asked the question I get from most people which is who who did he vote for and I said you know what it doesn't matter it's not about them it's about us uh, and that's to me the answer and and the the most beautiful thing about voting every time is it says far more about who we are than it does about um, whichever empty suit we've elected. And it seems so right to be listening to you talk about this on the eve of that uh, 
we're we're thinking so much about Roy Moore and, and Doug oh. Jones and um, who are we exactly or who are yeah who are American voters these days and um, I'm glad that we got to talk about a thriller about voting rights in this episode. Right. Um, Jess, thanks so much for being with us this this episode. It's it's great to have you. Yeah, thanks, thanks for guys. being on. Long conversation. Yeah, you too. Joining us next is Kiki Petrosino. Kiki is an associate professor of English at the University of Louisville, where she directs the creative writing program. She is the author of three books of poetry, including the forthcoming Witch Wife, published by Saraband Books. And by forthcoming, we mean its publication date is this week. Congratulations, Congratulations. Kiki. I'm so excited to read it. Um, And I think, you know, what a treat to have you on the show this week in particular. Well, thank you so much. Actually, that book is coming out tomorrow, so... I'm really excited about it. Thank you. It's really nice to talk to you guys. So we've got you've got a book coming out called Witch Wife, and we're going to look at a play, Macbeth, which has some very important witches in it. Uh, their line is, fair is foul and foul is fair. And it's certainly seemed that way in the United States government lately. Uh, Macbeth is Shakespeare's shortest tragedy. I'm kind of hoping that the Trump administration will be equally short, um, but I'm not optimistic right now. So for those of our listeners who might have last read the play a while back, the quick refresher, of course, is that three amazing creepy witches prophecy that a Scottish military leader will become the king and the prophecy makes him ambitious, maybe wouldn't have come true if he hadn't heard it. And in the search for power, he and his wife, the infamous Lady Macbeth, commit murder. It all ends in mayhem and blood and gore. And as Macbeth exclaims in the wake of killing someone... What hands are here? Ha, they pluck out mine eyes. Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? And well, spoiler alert, the answer is no. How do we read this play in in light of Robert Mueller's investigation and Michael Flynn turning on Donald Trump, which is the way that a lot of news organizations have been reporting it? What does Macbeth tell us that's useful for understanding the personalities, the cast of characters in the current administration? You know, the more that I actually looked at Macbeth uh, in preparation for this interview... Uh, I started to become less and less convinced that Macbeth is like a perfect corollary. I mean, there are some, there are some really interesting um, convergences that we that we can talk about. But if if we think about the figure of Macbeth and his companion uh, Banquo at the beginning of the play, they appear together um, and they you know they encounter the three witches um, as a you know they they're friends and they are military companions and they have just bested an enemy for which they're about to be rewarded handsomely by the king. Um, And, you know, Macbeth is called like brave Macbeth, like at the start of the play. So there's this, um, there's always this connection in Macbeth between like masculinity or manliness and violence um, and and aggression, which at the beginning of the play is figured in a positive light. Like, Macbeth did the right thing by defeating this enemy. And he did it violently, but he did it uh, with valor and with courage. Um, And so did Banquo. Well, we Um, all know that that Trump, you know, skipped military service, right, because of bone spurs. But, but, I mean, he wants you to think that he's a tough, manly guy in a good way. Exactly. Exactly. the difference is between the actions that were actually done and the <laughs> the narrative about the narrative about those actions. I think, yeah. um, you know, and Banquo Banquo is the kind of moral, uh, like uh, you know, other side of the coin for for Macbeth. Um, and I think that you know later in the play when Macbeth kills Banquo, 
he does that because Banquo is the only one who also heard the witches speak, you know, so he knows what was said. And if you remember at the beginning of the play, Banquo has a different reaction to the prophecy than Macbeth does. Macbeth is like, right. yes, this is all going to happen. Can't wait. <laughs> wow, it's amazing. And Mac- and Banquo basically does the verbal equivalent of a shrug. I know he's been he's been told that his uh, that his progeny will be the king will be kings for generations. Uh, but he he says to Macbeth, you know, uh, you know, uh, devilish figures um, can tell us half truths. Um, and and it, to purposely lead us to our harm, you know. So um, he's less willing to um, fully believe in the prophecy or allow the prophecy to dictate his actions. So to the extent that that Flynn knows things about <laughs> the Trump administration that that maybe Trump doesn't want to get out there, right. I mean, there is this like sort of shared knowledge that they that it, they may have. Um, but Trump does seem to be a bit more isolated in his um, approach to power. And one cannot really point to a companion in the same way that we would think about Macbeth and Banquo. I mean, what you're also suggesting is that, you know, Macbeth had somewhere to fall from. Like he had real accomplishments. Yeah. He right. had done things. He was, in fact, thought of as a good man at the, at the beginning of the play. And then the play is in part about his decision to become evil, in essence, right? His decision to betray people. Whereas you don't have the same sense of Trump being formerly, you know, I mean, with Flynn, I mean, there are arguments about how good of a general he was, but he did have a pretty distinguished military career before he got into, in other words, Macbeth's story is a lot more like people who've come into the administration who had good reputations and then have sullied them as they've been in the administration. That's right. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that point. And there is a question in in Macbeth about to what extent his ambition is born from the prophecy, from hearing the prophecy, or or if he was already very ambitious and that was his per- that was his personality, and he uses the prophecy as a reason to like launch this other side of himself you know i i actually prefer a reading that um that allows macbeth to kind of have some kind of uh ambition as a driving force i mean how can you otherwise how could you be so courageous and valorous in battle i mean those you know the 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 military hero i guess in the in the play um you know, you do that so that you can uh, you can get somewhere, right, on the basis yeah. of that success. So I think that Macbeth already had that within him. Um, and what he betrays is actually, like, that virtuous part of his of his manliness. I totally agree with you. Like, he, he very – as soon as he sends that letter to his wife, right, um, yeah. he's, he's already thinking about taking power. And what's amazing right. about the play that I think is useful – is this how quickly one thing leads to another? Like, okay, if I'm going to kill the king, then you know I also am going to have to kill Banquo and his son because that's part of the prophecy too. And then I'm going right. to have to kill all of Macduff's family, and suddenly you're in a mass slaughter, right? The, the way that the, right. it escalates for Macbeth is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean the news cycles are so uh, are so compressed right now that we definitely see. Um, we definitely experience a similar snowball effect. Um, you know, one thing will come out and then the next scandal, the next scandal, the next scandal. Um, uh, so things are moving very quickly in, uh, 
in the United States. Hey, we're going to skip over the Access Hollywood tape, and pretty soon, look what, we're defending Roy Morris. <laughs> right, exactly. God. Exactly, yeah. The other distinction that I feel like you just pointed out for me is the way that Macbeth reads. Um, Macbeth and Banquo are very different readers. And then also uh, the way that Macbeth, I mean, Macbeth views Banquo as, as a rival. And we've watched also the administration put so many of its, uh, so many people who were initially its allies um, on some sort of chopping block. I'm kind of waiting to see, I'm about waiting to see what happens to Nikki Haley, who has just said that, you know, right. she thinks even women who have accused President Trump of, um, you know, some sort of sexual harassment or sexual assault should be heard. And, but we've seen this sort of sequence of people uh, go down just as Banquo himself goes down. So I, I wonder um, if we can, if we can put Banquo in, into that, into that analogy, at least, or I was also trying to think about whether he was, whether he was like Putin or whether he was like Steve Bannon. I don't Banquo? buy that one. <laughs> no, Banquo's too cool to be Putin no. or Steve Bannon. <laughs> no, I, although I would, I would entertain an argument uh, that would figure the the media as maybe the witches, <laughs> like <laughs> oh, I like, like you that. Know, the pro, you know, the prophecy of you're going to be the king. Um, you know, there's been there has been critique of the media's treatment of of Trump during the campaign um, and how he he received. Um, I think they've they calculated it in the billions of dollars uh, of if he had had to pay for all that media coverage, it would have been very, very costly. You know, yeah, I, I think that maybe makes Jeff Zuckerberg the witches uh, there. I've seen feel like I've read a couple of articles about that specifically, which I thought were pretty persuasive. So then I mean, is, Lady, is Lady Macbeth is Lady Macbeth maybe Putin? Um, I, mean, I mean, the problem with with trying to make these sorts of uh trying to draw these sorts of lines is is that you run into the issue of the fact that Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are capable of feeling uh, they express a great deal of of guilt and remorse for the actions <laughs> that they yeah. that they commit and uh, and many of the most beautiful passages in Macbeth are about them contending with what they have done oh, and spot. and because like because Macbeth has the capacity for empathy, he has the capacity to like to understand the pain that he's causing, and Lady Macbeth as well. Um, you know, that's what kind of gives rise to some of to some of the most wonderful language that we have in the in the play. It's it, when I look for that empathy and when I look for that um, Guilt. capacity for remorse or something. Mm-hmm. When you know. Um, or, or course correction after a mistake, uh, I, don't, I don't see it. I, I can't really think of an administration official who's turned apostate in that way. Well, it's very, uh, it's very unpredictable what everyone's going to do. Whereas in Macbeth, you can always count on Banquo to be Banquo. Yeah. You know, you count on Duncan to be a good king. You count on Macduff to be, you know, the person who's going to right all the wrongs and be the vent, the, the, uh, avenging um, character um, in our politics, uh, the path is not nearly as uh, as as predictable. I think. I'm just curious. I think I'm just sort of hell bent on. I feel like Steve Bannon belongs in a Shakespeare play, but I can't figure right. out where he goes because because he's so gifted at manipulating pe- people. It seems like it seems like the extreme right is getting um, sort of everything that it that it wants in so many ways. And so I don't know. Is oh, it I know John, who John from is. much? 
Who is Bannon? Hecate. <laughs> the one who's in charge of the witches. Okay. Yeah, I mean, okay. maybe, because he's not, I mean, everybody would want to say, oh, like, let's put him in the Iago role, but, you know, he's not a false counselor in the sense that he doesn't pretend to be friends with anyone, you know? Um, he just is is quite direct about uh, his agenda, Um and so, in that way, he doesn't really use much artifice that I can see. So, maybe Hecate is a, is a good choice. Yeah, I and guess I was thinking She sends out of... the uh, avenging angels, you know, the avenging witches of Breitbart, you know. Right. Oh, God. <laughs> the avenging... <laughs> Speaking of, I, there is someone who is a former spokesperson for Breitbart, and that person has declared themselves a Democrat, saying that Roy Moore oh. is the last straw. All right. Um, so, there's, there's someone demonstrating remorse. Um, I hope that we can... We can see more of that. But um, Kiki, when you and I were corresponding about this episode, you said, um, you know, that you thought Macbeth was an interesting read. And, and also you offered The Tempest as an inter- as a counterpoint. And I yeah. had that that hadn't occurred to me, but I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, Tem- The Tempest, The Tempest might be my favorite uh, Shakespeare play. Um, and I think it's because it's about um what happens when you are the person who is wronged in which uh, Prospero, the main character, he's the person who has been unseated from power and, and he and his daughter Miranda end up, you know, shipwrecked on the Island. Prospero is a sorcerer and he's able to cause another uh, shipwreck to happen. Um, that brings all of his enemies to the Island and he, he uses magic to manipulate them. What I notice in reading the Tempest is how much it's about, the ex- exercise of will over other people. And it seems to ask the question, like, can I really make people do what I want them to do? If you look at act one and the first two scenes of act one, so many of the sentences are imperative sentences. There are commands from, from the people that are involved with the shipwreck, trying to write the mm-hmm. ship. Um, there are, and then, you know, the first thing that Miranda says to her father is, you know, if by your art, you have caused this storm, undo it you know and so they're there and then what he says is sit down and i'll tell you why i did all these things you know um and that's what casting a spell is a spell is saying let this be that it's making a command over something that ordinarily you would not be able to have like you would not be able to have dominion over and so i think maybe the lesson for our politics is about about control and about the extent to which um, we can make a voter behave in a certain way, the extent mm-hmm. to which we can make the media behave in a certain way, um, the extent to which um, we can look at men in media and say, you know, behave this way from now on. Um, this is what the workplace is. And realizing that we may have some power to change things, but we won't have the power to change everything. And when we try to have so much power over everything, what everyone does, when we want to have that, um, we want to have that control, it ends up being hurtful to us. Well, see, that, see, to me, that means (laughs) the Tempest is like the play that dramatizes the things that the Democratic Party thinks about, which is like, should we use power? How should we use it? Is it fair the way we're using power? Yeah. And I feel comfortable in those kind of, but the, and Macbeth is the Republican like, what, we're going to use this damn power and I hope we get away with it. Right. Yeah. It seems like the difference. 
Yeah, I mean, as you're talking, Kiki, I'm thinking about, um, I feel like the last thing that I posted on Facebook might have been a story about voter suppression in Alabama. You know, do we have the power to make uh, black people in Alabama vote the way that we want? And I think the story was about um, maybe voter ID offices closing in some of those places, you know, purportedly for budget reasons. And the way that um, some analysts are reading this, of course, as a desire to suppress the votes of minorities and sort of that being a, a conversation that Democrats are really Democrats are really interested in pointing this out, Democrats and also perhaps third party or independent voters and the way that gerrymandering is really becoming a legacy of the Republican Party. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and those are willful actions, you know, to gerrymander, to gerrymander a district, to close a driver's license office, uh, to deliberately disenfranchise, um, you know, in ways that are completely like non-magical, you know, like those are very earthly, practical exertions of power. And just like, you know, the, the coup that took, that took Prospero's, um, uh, you know, dukedom from him, um, you know, that's what that's that's similar to the realm that we're in. I think um, the question then becomes like, well, what do we do with this fact that something unjust has happened? You know, do we do we take revenge if we can, or is there some other human capacity for for um, for amplitude or something that may move us more towards justice. So in this thought experiment that you're doing with the play right now, which I like, which I think is really cool, basically you're thinking like that Prospero is like the out-of-power Democrats and, you know, the, the, the shipwrecked party are the Republicans who have taken his office. Is that is that how you're thinking of it? Uh, well, I'm thinking sort of, yeah. I mean, I think that, that Prospero has every right to be angry and every right to want vengeance but in exerting that he runs the risk of becoming yes. the mo- the monster that he that you know that already ruined his life yeah you know in order to go on with life um in order to grow we there has to be there has to be reconciliation um if not if not forgiveness and i know that it's not time to talk about that yet because we need to get some justice done you know <laughs> uh, we need to to bring back um to bring back some of our our, our principles that um, that uh, that of course in the Democratic Party um, we espouse. Um, so, you know, I'm not, I, I guess for me I'm resistant to um, drawing an equal sign between specific characters and specific mm-hmm. uh, parties um, in our own in our own politics, just because I think that we have the capacity to be all of them. Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely true. I mean, I think I've been reading a lot of, I mean, I guess now I'm one of those people who often reads the news through Facebook and, um, you know, on my newsfeed sort of seeing people, there's a, there's a lot of discussion about Al Franken and what should Democrats do about Al Franken, which seems to me, I mean, it's not a perfect analogy for this, but as you say, but kind of that question of, um, well, we want to seize power. We want to have as many strong senators as we can, but also, with this senator accused of this, um, what is what does a what does a smart and moral Democrat do? Is it possible to be both smart and moral in this situation? Yeah. And those those battles here, like right the this 
the idea that being moral is going to require some kind of sacrifice that you are going to give something up and that imperfection is, um, is part of the system. Right. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you guys a question just for fun to play around with. Also, I was thinking about why in these two plays that are about power and political power, as Kiki's rightly pointed out, um, why is it that there are such important supernatural elements, right? In other words, Prospero wouldn't be able to do anything that he, you know, wouldn't be able to control Alonzo and his whole group without Ariel. And, um, and it, similarly, in, in Macbeth, you know, the witches double, double, bo- you know, what is it? Double trouble. What, I'm, now I'm getting it wrong. Double, double, boiling. Oh, no. No, double, double, toil and trouble. That's what (laughs) it is. Mm -hmm. Double, double, toil and trouble. I mean, without their prophecy and their involvement in the human scene and their aiding in some ways and and encouraging Macbeth, none of that play would happen either. Why is it that when talking about political power in these ways, uh, Shakespeare brings in these supernatural elements? Well, I think that the supernatural has to stand in for something human, some human potentiality yeah. or some human capacity that we, that we have. Yes. Um, you know, I think when the witches say, like, don't they say, uh, by the pricking of my thumb, something wicked this way comes, yes. you know? Mm-hmm. It's like when all of us are just walking down the street, we have the potential to be the wicked thing that's on its way. Yes. Um, or we can be or we can be good and benevolent, um, you know, just... You know, there there are two sides to our nature, or actually more than two sides. Um, And all the witches say is, this will happen, this will happen, this will happen. And then, you know, the path to those conclusions is drawn by Macbeth and his choices. He chooses to betray uh, the good part of himself um, in his pursuit of power. Um, and he and he pays dearly for that, you know. Uh, when it comes to when it comes to uh, Prospero, um, you know, he comes to his magical powers through study, and so his his powers are about manipulating what he knows about about nature in order to kind of like cause things to come together in this kind of confluence that then gives him a playing field. Um, to to work out further manipulations, um, but he's defeated in that in a sense because you know um, Ariel at one crucial point um, says to him, you know, all the people that you wanted vengeance on uh, are now really suffering. Like Gonzalo is is crying, his tears are falling into his beard, and <laughs> if you if you could, if, yeah. <clears throat> You know, if you could look at at this suffering, your affections would be would be activated. And, uh, you know, and Prospero says, um, well, are yours? Like, do you care? Like, you're a supernatural spirit. And he says, I would if I were human. And that's the most intense moment of the play. Yeah. You know? Yeah. If I were human. Yeah. That sense that maybe morality and choice, that immorality, the choice of morality or immorality is something that is in a way supernatural for, for all of us. And that can have catastrophic effects depending on how that choices used. Right. Yep. I feel like there's something also there about supernatural elements and the slipperiness of language because in Macbeth, right, the prophecy, Macbeth reads the prophecy one way and he's being given this language that is, I mean, I guess to speculate on the intent of the witches, and the witches are toying with him and they're toying with him by using terms that can be interpreted in different ways and he chooses to interpret them in the way that is favorable to him. Um right. 
and, you know, then insists on his version of the truth. And then when it turns out that his reading was wrong, that his understanding of the language was imprecise, that he was a bad reader, that he was, um, I don't know, I like the way that that kind of helps us to understand the importance of precise language and the power of language and the way that, I mean, I think, you know, there's been quite a lot written, and I think rightly so, about the way that the current administration uses language, denies uh, the possibility of using precise terms through repetition, has created its own kinds of language, and has made a kind of almost incantatory version of its own spell to sort of say what it is that the rest of us ought to believe, um, right. sort of in flagrant disregard of the way that fact actually operates. I just have yeah, to say- I agree. Yeah, and in terms of language, it is so much fun for me to go back and read these plays, and you realize how many lines from these plays have entered into our culture and we use every day. The uh, tale told by an idiot signifying nothing is from Macbeth. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, it it certainly felt like a felt very apt to be rereading them. Yeah. I felt a little weird. I, I did take it to my son's soccer game. I'm sitting there with the complete works of Shakespeare on my lap reading this stuff during a game, but it was fun. I should do it more often. That's awesome. I think Shakespeare is even more relevant now. We need him more than ever, basically. So as we were as we were thinking about this episode, I kept returning to, although we hadn't originally brought it up, I kept thinking of Hamlet. There's a certain kind of American reader who seems to me a bit Ophelia-like, naive yet kind, certain of their own good intentions, but also failing uh, to be exactly in line with them, smart but a little too astonished that all of this is possible. And Ophelia can't be saved or restored to sanity. She kind of wanders off mm-hmm. and is lost. And I wonder what you think of that and if there are any characters in Hamlet that speak to either of you in this context and how Ophelia compares. And of course, here we're talking about characters with also also powerful um, powerful female figures in Shakespeare, how do we compare, can we compare Ophelia and Lady Macbeth at all? I mean, we were talking about um, how the Democratic Party is trying to establish a kind of moral high ground in heavily sanctioning um, members of its own party who have been accused of, of various improprieties. Um, uh, and and part of the justification for that I've been reading is so that the Democrats can say to the Republicans or say to the undecided voter, we're the party of moral accountability. Um, the counter argument to that is that um, the other side may not really like respond to that argument <laughs> um, and that our our gestures towards moral accountability may fall on deaf ears um, or may in fact open the door for more immorality from the other side. Um, And so in that way, I think maybe the idealistic voter is kind of Ophelia-like, what what you're saying about being a little bit too astonished that all of these things can happen. I mean, it seems like we're always like, and I even have this response too of like um, thinking to myself, wait, what just happened? But that can't be. And just thinking about it and thinking about it and being so surprised each time something comes up. And, you know, and and I think that maybe if we could be a little bit uh, if we can be Ophelia like in her good qualities, which is that that she's kind and that she has this capacity for goodness and generosity and she sees the good in in Hamlet, you know, Um, we also need to be a little bit edgier um, Yeah, not end up killing ourselves. Exactly. Like me, but you know, and so, and in that case, maybe 
Lady Macbeth might not be our best example either because she also <laughs> kills herself. But but she, you know she's she's very uh, determined to pursue her course, and um, so uh, there must be some kind of uh, of way to 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 slice it so that so that you can have um, kindness and generosity, um, but also um, strength and determination as a, a politically activated person in this landscape. I just think it was really interesting thinking about those two plays that Hamlet is a play about the main characters deciding whether or not to notice that something illegal and twisted has occurred. That there's something rotten in Denmark. Whereas Macbeth is a play about the people deciding whether or not they want to do something that is morally wrong. So, all right. Kiki said that you shouldn't draw direct parallels, but it's fun to do so. <laughs> so I'm going to suggest that we cast these plays with people from the Trump administration. If you were casting nice. Macbeth or Tempest, pick your pick your poison. Who would you put pick from the from the administration or current uh, figures in politics in America? Are you guys there? I'm just waiting for one of you all to say oh, something okay. first. All right, you want me to go? I'll yeah, go. fine. I'll go. Uh, I would, you know, look, Macbeth is Trump. That's it, man. That's all there is to it. Duncan is Romney, who Trump, or at least stands in for like the sort of, you know, uh, old fashioned Republican, you know, uh, who has some sort of moral sense, but needs to be unseated or is unseated. Um, The witches, Rush Limbaugh, Alex Jones, Kellyanne Conway, Hecate, as I've already said, Steve Bannon. Banquo is Comey. Banquo is Comey? Yeah. Comey, PC guy, ran with these fellows and then got fired. Um, And McDuff, who brings in Macbeth's head at the end. (laughs) That is Mueller. Yeah, tell us who that is. We all know who that is. That is Mueller. (laughs) Now, the sad part of this is that the person who becomes king after McDuff brings in Macbeth's head is, is Malcolm. And Malcolm is Mike Pence. Oh, God. Wow. (laughs) Jeff Zuckerberg is not the witches? Who? (laughs) I can't believe Jeff Zuckerberg is not the witches. I'll take that. Well, that's that's your version. (laughs) Okay. I don't know. I think that's that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I mean, my other answer would be just that everyone is Lear. (laughs) (laughs) Like, including us. Like, (laughs) Out on the heath. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you think about it, the more you think about it, you know, that's it. Everyone turns into Lear. That's my statement. All right. Well, that's <laughs> where we'll leave it. <laughs> Kiki, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about this. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. It was really, really fun. And we're so excited to check out Which Wife Publishing tomorrow, um, as we were taping on Monday of this week. And you can find it from Saraband Books. And now on to our bookstore segment in the stacks with JJ Cantrell. Hi, this is JJ Cantrell. This week's guest for In the Stacks is Annie Philbrick. Annie actually owns two bookstores, Bank Square Books in Mystic, Connecticut, and Savoy Bookshop and Cafe in Westerly, Rhode Island. She was a judge last year for the Kirkus Prize for Fiction and serves on the American Booksellers Association Board. Annie, what books do you have to recommend for us this week? 
uh, the final days by Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, the reporters from the Washington Post during the Watergate scandal, um, sort of goes over that. And I think if we write, reread it again today, it would make us think of some things that are happening today with our current presidency. Um, a current one that's out that's actually really picking up in sales now is Collusion by Luke Harding. Uh, second title is Secret Secret Meetings, Dirty Money, and How Russia Helped Donald Trump Win the Presidency. Um, people are really picking this one up to sort of figure out what role Russia may have really had within the presidency. Two backlist titles, as we call them, ones that were published uh, a while ago but uh, could sort of rise up to the surface, is Day of the Jackal by Frederick Forsyth, which is a thriller, suspense thriller about an assassin um, looking to kill Charles de Gaulle, one of the most heavily guarded men in the world. Um, you could sort of replace the different characters and think about how that book might be relevant today as well. Um, another sort of fiction uh, suspense writer of many books is Jeffrey Archer. He's written a number of thrillers, um, political thrillers. The one that I'm talking about here is Shall We Tell the President um, is another thriller uh full of secrecy, intrigue, uh, you know, sort of dark, dirty politics. Um, there's one that we haven't heard much of, um, at least in the United States. There's a journalist from The Guardian named Sam Bourne, who has also written a book recently from HarperCollins um, called To Kill the President. Um, he's another suspense thriller writer, which I find is kind of interesting that uh, you could, as I mentioned before, you could change the characters and, uh, you know, put it into modern day. Um, then in terms of comparing, you know, Trump and Nixon, there are a number of books about Nixon himself that would be interesting to read and sort of uh, think about current day. And one is Richard Nixon, The Life by John Farrell. Another one is Inside Nixon's White House by his own Patrick Buchanan. Um so those are two that are that are still in print that would be interesting to read and sort of reflect back upon what happened during the Watergate scandal and how it's applicable to what's happening today with uh, Donald Trump. And that's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Sugi and I will be back with a new episode in two weeks. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us in iTunes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or at the Literary Hub website. We have a merry band of listeners, the computers tell us, and we love seeing all of you talking about the podcast on social media. Thanks. Our reviews on iTunes, all I can say is, be a trendsetter. You can find links to the books we referenced this week on our Facebook page F- at FNF Pod or on Twitter at FNF Talk. Happy reading, and as the bard says, when the hurly burly's done, when the battle's lost and won, that will be air in the set of sun.